chance on us, I think you'd be blessed by it. You, you really do. When you work with the kids, it feels like, oh, okay, all I'm doing is chasing them around the room and wiping snotty noses. But you really make a difference in their lives. Um, you talk to any of our ladies that work in the child care center, and they'll tell you what a blessing it is to us, and then all of our volunteers as well. Okay, so that would be next week after service. If you're interested in signing up, uh, come talk to me. All right, so we are continuing our series on authentic faith, and the title for today's uh, series or today's uh, message is "Faith Loves." And so we'll be reading from James chapter one and going into uh, chapter two. So if you want to turn over with me, we're going to start in James one, verse twenty-six. I'm going to read through this and then we'll pray. If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress, and refusing to let the world corrupt you. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example... Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery and you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say and whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Lord God, thank you today for this word, and as we enter into this time, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, Lord. I pray that you would guard my tongue and help me to say only those things that would build up and edify those that are in this place. Lord God, I pray that you would anoint everyone in this place to hear what you would say to them today, Lord, and not just let it go in one ear and out the other, but Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish that which you send it forth for. Lord, I pray that it would help us to transition and transform ourselves in, more into your likeness. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is a, a tendency among Christians to make Christianity look more like what we think it should look like rather than what God says it should look like. And uh, this is something that's been noted a couple times in the past, uh, you know, because God expects things of us, but often it's easier for us to bring the standards down to where we are than to bring ourselves up to where the standards are. 
And the, the minister, David Platt, said, I'm convinced that the deep, dark secret of our religious subculture in the southern United States is that we want Christianity and we want church on our terms, according to our preferences, aligning with our lifestyles. We are a people happy to go to church just so long as nothing in our lives has to change. We are a people glad to be Christians just so long as we can define Christianity according to what accommodates us. The only problem is that in order for the religion of Christianity to be authentic, true, and actually acceptable before God, we have to let Him define what it looks like. So in today's message, we're going to see a New Testament explanation of what faith and religion, the true kind of religion, the kind of religion that is honorable and is, is, it's acceptable to God, and we're going to be faced with a choice. Are we going to define, continue to define religion by what we think it is, or are we going to allow God to tell us what religion is and what it should look like? Are we going to submit to His terms of what faith and religion and Christianity should look like in our lives, in our families, and in our churches? Religion is a word that carries a lot of weight. Some people like it, some people don't. But Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. So... If we're going to talk about religion and we're going to talk about what true religion looks like, first of all, we need to come to, the, come to grips with the fact that we don't usually like this word religion. It carries a lot of baggage with it. Um, a lot of people will use this word um, negatively um, and because they will assume that religion has to do with a bunch of man-made laws that we have put on ourselves and that it has nothing to do with what God really wants. That's why when you look at uh, polls and things today, you see that more and more people are claiming that they are spiritual, but they're not religious. But we, we, it brings to mind these negative connotations and, and a legalistic mindset. Um, and, and it can, you know, it, it, for some people it just turns their stomach to even think about being a religious person or, or to be a part of a religion. It, it, it's uh, anathema to them. But Scripture, when it talks about religion, it actually has that connotation, but it also has a positive connotation as well. It talks about religion of, for instance, the Pharisees and how that's a negative way. They use that religion as a power to oppress others, whereas true religion is what God has called us to. And um, God has some very specific opinions of what religion should look like. So what does it look like? There's three things we're going to look at today. Uh, first is in verse 126. And he talks about controlling the tongue, right? Controlled speech that displays a changed heart. And so when James is writing here about changed speech, all right, and, and guarding the tongue and, and what comes out of our mouths, he's really just agreeing what Jesus had already said. In Matthew chapter 12, 34, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in 15, 18, he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we see here, 
Jesus is talking about this, and it's not just a one and done. He doesn't just hit it and move on. This apparently is an idea that he wants us to get into our heads. He mentions it over and over. And he wants you to realize that, you know, what we say, you know, talking is easy. Talking is cheap, right? It's so easy to say something and not mean it. It's so easy to say one thing, and then 30 seconds later, you forget you even said it. But speech is powerful. What we talk about is powerful. The things that we communicate to others can have great power to influence their life for good or for evil. And what we have to realize is that our speech, the things that come out of our mouth, is a reflection of what is inside of us. James is pointing out that if our speech is not controlled, our religion is worthless, vain, and meaningless. So really, it's like if you... I mean, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. It doesn't matter how consistent you are in your attendance at church, how much you give and tithe and offering. It doesn't matter how many hours you volunteer in the children's ministry or the food bank or the prayer team or whatever. If, if you, it doesn't matter what all those things are. If you will, by letting your tongue run uncontrolled and unrestrained, it, it undermines everything that you're trying to do. And I think this might be why in our tradition there was such like a legalism over um, how you talk uh, and, and profanity and the things that you say and, and making sure that you're only saying things that, that are uplifting to others and, and those kinds of things. And, and it's because it truly is an important thing. It is an indicator of what's going on in your heart. I remember when I was a kid, I was confused by this. I was confused by the fact that, okay, there's certain words that are bad, and you shouldn't say these bad words, right? And I remember thinking, well, who said that that's bad, right? Who, who decided that this word's bad, but this one's not? You know, you know, as a little kid, you're like, you know, you can say duty, but you better not say that word that starts with an S-H, right? You know, so why is one okay, but the other one's not? You know, and, and but it, it just, it rises from the fact that, you know, we're, we're trying to reflect with our words what's going on in our heart. We want to be clean. We want to be purified. We want to do what's acceptable. And I remember as a kid thinking, all right, so if it's a sin to say a swear word, if I were walking along and I were to stub my toe on this monitor here and trip and fall off of the stage, and as I'm falling, I admit or I, I say a word that I really wish I hadn't, and then when I hit the floor, my neck snaps and I'm dead and I'm gone, does that mean I'm going to hell? You know, I remember having those kinds of thoughts and thinking and, and, you know, I, I was so worried about it. I remember, I remember the very first time I ever said a swear word. I was at, in elementary school, I was on the playground and one of the other kids was like, you won't say it, you won't say it. And then I did, I said it. And then I remember thinking, oh God, please don't kill me right now. Because I was worried. I, I'd said that swear word, and I thought, oh, man, this is it. Because if I die before I get home and I've had a chance to repent, it's all over for me. But the reality is it's not God trying to come up with a bunch of rules and trying to play gotcha and get you on this. I mean, I'm sure everybody, well, I know Pastor has talked to you guys about this before. We've all said things that we wish we hadn't, Right? And we've all said things where we thought, if I had slowed down and taken a minute, I might not have worded it quite that way, right? But, see, we live in a society where it, we just generate so much 
communication, right? You can turn on the news and they're talking 24 hours a day about what's going on. They don't even have new stuff to say. They'll say something and then an hour later they're saying the same thing and then an hour later they're saying the same thing again and they just get on there and these talking heads, they're back and forth and it's the same thing. People get on Facebook and they spew all of their personal drama or they'll get on Twitter and they'll, they'll start tweeting some celebrity or, or you know, being a smart aleck or whatever. And, and so in this day of text messaging and emails and cell phones, Twitter and blogs and Facebook, um, we need to be careful. See, we've created an entire culture that says as soon as a thought pops into your head, you should communicate it and share it with others. And, you know, that's not really the best policy, right? Because we have to realize that what we say on Facebook, it doesn't go away. And I've, I've talked about this with the teenagers, about that app Snapchat. Right? There's nothing wrong with the app, but they think that, oh, well, if I send it, and, and if you don't know anything about the app, the, the, the whole premise and the concept of the app is that you can send a message, and after so long, after it's been viewed, it, it, it gets deleted. It goes away. But what they don't realize is that nothing ever really goes away. So those things that you say, you think that it might be gone, but it isn't gone. And even if it was gone, even if it was scrubbed from every computer server and it never existed again, the person who read that message will not forget those things that you said. So we have to be careful and we have to carefully choose what we're going to share, what we're going to put out into the world. We have to keep a tight rein on our tongue and speak in a way that shows our faith is real and that our heart has truly been transformed by God. You know, one of my favorite books of the Bible to read is Proverbs. And, and it often talks about the wise and the foolish, and it compares the two. You'll see that over and over again as you read through Proverbs. And one of the things you notice is that in the book of Proverbs, the wise use few words. They choose carefully what they're going to say. And when they do, because they're not just babbling and spurting out whatever comes into their mind, when they actually speak up and have something to say, their words are valuable. It says that they're worth more than gold and rubies. And it says that uh, the words of a wise person are satisfying like a good meal. And that's the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to be the kind of person where I'm just running my mouth so much that when I'm talking, people just turn me off, right? Right? They don't want to hear the noise that's coming out of me because they know I don't ever say anything worthwhile. I don't ever say anything that'll be helpful to them. I'm just spouting nonsense. You know, my son is 13, and he's got his things that he really likes. He likes the Pokemon. He likes his video games. There's, you know, certain TV shows that he's into. And so sometimes he'll get in the car, and, and I'm telling you, for the next 20 minutes, I'm getting a whole dissertation about which Pokemon does what and all that kind of stuff. And, and you want to just turn it off, right? And I tried to tell him before. I, I've said, you know, son, we can have a conversation about something that actually matters, right? I know that you enjoy Pokemon. I, I'm glad that you like it. But have those conversations with your friends who also enjoy Pokemon, right? And he said, okay, Dad, okay, Dad, we'll talk about something else. And so we'll start talking about something else, and about five minutes later, you know, that reminds me of this one Pokemon, and, you know, we're right back on it. And, and it's just to the point where I'm like, son, you got to shut it down, shut it down. <laughs> you know, let, let's talk about something that is meaningful and worthwhile. And so, you know, that's what we should be like. We don't want to just be spouting nonsense all the time so that people don't listen. We want our words to be like choice morsels, right? Something that they're looking forward to, all right? So a controlled speech that displays a changed heart, that's the first sign of true religion. 
The second sign is sacrificial care for those in need. In verse uh, 27, uh, James is passionate about saying that, that Christianity is, is radically concerned with, one, personal purity, right? That's what we were talking about, the, 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 the words that represent what has changed inside of you, what's been purified inside of you. But it's also about public compassion. It's about showing love to others and um, care for people that no one else cares about. And there's a lot of people, you know, we, and we hear it talked about all the time, but we t- it's, a, it's a faceless mass, right? We hear, you know, the, the, the underprivileged. We hear uh, about people who, who, who need assistance, all right? But it's always just in general terms, right? But when you start putting faces to names, you realize that this person needs my help. They need help. They are helpless. They are helpless to help themselves, right? And that's why... God has placed us in positions where we can minister to other people. When James wrote this letter, there was no life insurance, all right? And so if a husband or a father died, passed away, that family had no one to provide for them. If there was not a a close relative that could come in and, and could help support them and that kind of thing, they were just out of luck. And so that's why over and over in the Bible it talks about you know, we have to care for the widows and the orphans. Because back then they didn't have government programs. They didn't have food stamps. They didn't have foster care and all these kinds of things. And, but here's the danger as Christians. We think, well, now that there is life insurance, now that there is health insurance, now that there are foster agencies and all those kinds of things, well, now we don't have to worry about that. But the reality is, is that people still need our help. Even with the, the, the social safety nets that we've constructed, and those are good things. I mean, I know a lot of people that have been helped and received food stamps when they didn't uh, have it, that, that have received health insurance through the government who weren't able to get it otherwise. You know, there's, those safety nets are great. They're valuable things, but that doesn't take the responsibility away from Christians to help those who are helpless. There are millions of children today that are, they, they don't have a parent that'll come wake them up to play with them, to read them stories, or to tuck them in at night. Statistics show that currently in the United States, there's over 400,000 children in our foster care system. Now, some of those are temporary placements, but, um, you know, so they'll be with a foster family for a short period of time while their parents are able to get some things worked out, and then they're able to go back and be with their families, and that's wonderful. But of that 400,000, a quarter of them, 100,000 of them have had their parental rights terminated and they're simply waiting for someone to come along and adopt them. And, you know, it falls to the church. You know, we should be out there in the world making a difference, helping these people who are helpless. You know, I've got a friend, he's, uh, they, they got married the same summer we did and their lives are a little bit different than ours. We've got one hyperactive child he has six biological children right and then just this last few in the last few months they live in this big old house up in in Ohio and they said you know even in the with our six kids we still have more room so they went out and they've got three foster kids living with them now so they had to trade up they no longer have the the full-size van they now have a 15 passenger church bus you know that that's what they're driving around every day go get the groceries and all that but you know, and I asked him, I was like, you know, why would you want to go out and, you know, foster children and, and possibly adopt and all that when you've already got so many kids? And, and, and he just said, we just felt like that's what God wanted us to do. 
You know, we had the space in our house. We, you know, they have their work situation is such that the, the, the wife is able to stay home and homeschool the children and, and give them a good Christian upbringing. And, and, and he said, how could we not share that with someone else who needs it? And so that's what we must do. When we find someone who is helpless, we must be selfless. All right. Scripture tells us that God is a father to the fatherless. All right. And and but how does God do that? Does God come down and he is the actual father to someone? Well, yes, in a spiritual sense. But he also relies on us to go out and to be his hands and feet in the world. When we see something, if you see a problem, God isn't showing you the problem just so that you can shake your head and say, oh, that's such a shame. That's so terrible. I wish somebody would do something about that. No, if God is showing you something, it's because he's speaking to you and he's saying, here, here's an opportunity for you to go and to make a difference in someone's life. And so sometimes we think, well, that's what, you know, that's what the pastor's for, that's what the staff at the church is for, or that's what the social workers are for. And we, we always want to shift the responsibility off of ourselves to someone else. Why? Because if we shift it to someone else, then it's not our fault when it falls through the cracks. But we have to realize that the place where you are in your life, the place where God has put you, you are there to make a difference in someone's life. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't understand this. How is me um, unloading semi-trucks over at UPS or, or um, you know, putting, loading metal into machines at Ford or, or whatever it is that you're doing, and you think, well, that's not a calling that God has called me to do. And you're right. God doesn't care whether or not you move the boxes or, or put the metal in the machine or, or whatever it is you're doing. But he has put you into that place so that you have a position of influence in people's lives. You can do things in your work situation. You can do things in your home situation, in, in extracurricular activities that you're involved in, so that you have a place, a position, and influence in someone's lives. I know, I think I've shared before, when I was uh, driving the school bus and, and to make ends meet and to make a little extra money over the summers, I was waiting tables down at Olive Garden. And it wasn't fun, right? I mean, having the extra cash in my pocket was fun, and that helped out. But it wasn't always fun waiting tables with people who were rude, with people who were nasty, with, you know, co-workers that, uh, you know, as soon as they got out of the front part of the house and into the back where the kitchen was, it was a string of four-letter words and that, would, that would make a sailor blush, you know. And, and, and I thought, God, why am I here? Why am I in this place? But I didn't realize what a, uh, he had put me in that place to make a difference in some people's lives. Now, I'm not saying that, that their lives are perfect now, but there are people in that place who were completely against Christians. They, they had a completely negative view of Christians. All right? They would argue with me about Christianity and about, because they, they, they ascribed to the atheistic view and God's not real and, and you're just a fool and deluded to, all, to, to, to believe all that. And they were living lives completely opposite to what God would desire for them. And yet, by the time I left, they had changed their opinion of, of what a Christian could be. You know, because I didn't speak hate. I didn't, you know, treat them badly. And they saw that, you know what, maybe this isn't just talk. Maybe they really do love me. I had people who, who were living lives absolutely that would, would it just the absolute opposite of what God would want for them. And yet they're coming to me at, at work while we're making our sweet tea and getting our coffee and all that stuff ready to take out to the table. And the guy says, hey, you know, can you just pray for me? You know, and I said, yeah, I'll be happy to. And, and, you know, 
And then I told him, you know, you could pray too. <laughs> you don't have to come to me. It's not like I have a direct line to God that you don't. You can pray just like I can. I said, so let's pray together, you know? And so, you know, you might not see why you're in a situation, but you have to look at those times and say, God, how can I make a difference in my position? And you may not know what a difference you make. You may not know that that person has had a terrible day, but just one nice interaction with somebody makes a difference. But, and, and, but beyond that, you know, whenever we see someone who's helpless, whenever we see someone in need, we have to be selfless. Why? Because God is selfless, and that is another mark of true religion. Another way and another mark of true religion is a clear separation from the ways of the world. In this passage, passage, James mentions the word world three times. And, um, and each time, he's referring to this fallen worldly system all right, that, that runs contrary to the ways of God. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever done some woodworking. I've not done woodworking very much. I was pretty terrible at it. But I did take shop class in middle school. I've got a stool that's fallen apart. And hey, this is my great thing that I made. Right? Um, but... Anyway, when you're in woodworking, one of the things that they, they taught me was that when you're, when you're cutting, when you're sanding, all of that kind of stuff, you want to go with the grain, right? You don't want to go across the grain. I mean, you can if you're an expert and you know exactly what you're doing. But in general, you want to go with the grain. Why? Because the wood naturally wants to run in a particular direction. And if you're going across that or if you're going against the grain then it's just going to mess up what you're trying to do. It's not going to work like it's supposed to work. It's going to mess up the finish of the wood, and it won't go together the way it should. And so we find ourselves in a world where the grain of the world is running counter to what God wants us to do. The, world, the grain of the world is running counter to where God wants us to be. And so we have to be careful that we're not caught up in the, the trends and, and, the, and, and all the things that the world has going on and that we lose sight of where we're supposed to be heading. You know, it's like being in a, in a stream or a current. You know, if, if you've ever been wading out in a stream and if you're wading through and it's only ankle deep, it doesn't much bother you uh, when the water is running one way and you're going another way. When you get up to waist deep and it's a little more difficult, Right. You know, so then as you're stepping each step, you've got that pressure on yourself that's pushing you sideways. It's pushing you down where you don't want to go. You get neck deep, well, you're in trouble. And, you know, I've told you guys, or, and, and I know I've felt it before, you know, when you're in this world, sometimes it feels like it's all you can do just to keep your head above the water, right? But we have to keep our eyes on where God's trying to get us to go, and we have to make sure that we don't get caught up in the current climate of our society and get pulled away from where God wants us to be. Um, James defines holiness as going against the grain of the world, not living according to the system. And one of the things that, that the world does is the world picks favorites, right? We like to pick people that are like us. We want to, and, and, and it's, a, it's a self-selecting thing. You know, uh, people will talk about, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, Little Italy, and there's the Greek neighborhood, and there's, you know, the, the, whatever. And, and, and people will say, it's terrible that, 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 uh, that these groups won't work together and that they, that they choose to segregate themselves like that. And, but that's the thing. It is, it is a self-segregation. Why? We want to be with people that are like us. We want to be with people that look like us, that dress like us, that talk like us, that like the things we do. 
And so we have a tendency to get into a little bubble where we are separate from everybody else. And then when somebody comes along who's not part of our group, you know, we may not be actively hostile towards them, but we're going to show a preference for someone who's like us. And see, the danger of that is, is that as Christians, we will lose our influence if we surround ourselves in a bubble of only other Christians. All right, We will lose our influence with a lot of people, people that God put into your life that He wants you to have an influence on, but you have chosen not to interact with them. Why? Because they don't look like you, because they don't talk to you, because they don't listen to the music that you listen to. And we self-select our way out of our influence in the world. And James in this passage points out that that's actually a sinful attitude. All right? God has called you to make a difference in the world, not to build your little bubble of friends that are like you and just, you know, it's us, you know, us four and no more. So the actual word that is translated here um, in the New Testament, it literally means to receive according to the face. And what it's saying there is that's when you're making judgments about people based on external appearance. Favoritism is present any time that we are making judgments about people based on external per, uh, appearance. I like to read science fiction and fantasy novels. That's my fun reading. I like to alternate back and forth. I'll read you know, a ministry book or a nonfiction book, and then I like to read, uh, I call it my trash reading, my, my science fiction, my fantasy reading. And um, I was reading one not too long ago, and I thought it was really interesting. For me, it's, it's a, especially like the hard science fiction where they try to say, okay, well, what, what's humanity going to look like in a thousand years? In my head, I'm saying, if the Lord tarries that long. But it is a fun thought experiment to think about, you know, what will we be doing as, as humanity? What will our cities look like? What will the world look like? Will we be, you know, expanded out into space and that kind of stuff? And um, I was reading this book not too long ago, and in this book... Um, humanity had spread beyond earth and they had colonized Mars. So you had earth and you had Mars. And then beyond that, you had people that had pushed on out into the asteroid belt. And they were living out there in the asteroid belt. And because they were no longer uh, confined by gravity, it, they'd gotten to the place where their bodies were starting to change and, and, and morph because they didn't have gravity pulling them down. So uh, they called them the belters. You had the, 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 planet, the, the people who lived on the inner planets, so those were the inners, and then you had the belters who lived out on the asteroid belt. And they, they got taller because they didn't have gravity making them shorter and all that. And what was so interesting about this book, and, you know, I won't get all into it, but the thing that I thought was so interesting is the fact that there was still prejudice, right? In this, in this society, they'd gone beyond uh, uh, national borders, right? There weren't Chinese people and Indian people and American people and all that, um, you know, and they had even gone beyond planetary, but they had they'd still found a way to self-select and say, you know, it's us versus them, Right? And, and so that was the whole premise of the book, is the, it, a war that sparked between the two of them. But, you know, and, and, and that's interesting because it's like no matter where we go as humans, we take that preference, that favoritism with us, but we have to realize that that's not the way God designed us to be. He designed us to, to love the other. He designed us to, to be with the other. So the question is, how are we going to separate ourselves from this worldly system that wants to label everybody, put us in a box, separate us from each other? I mean, if you look at politics today, 
it's so bad. Every, there's all these different um, focus groups. You know, you've got, you've got uh, the, the different groups that have self-selected out, right? Minority groups, majority groups, uh, religious groups, uh, every kind of group you can think of. And then it's always, no matter what group it is, it's them versus the world, right? It's them and they're being put upon by everybody else. And so everybody wants to be the victim. Everybody wants to say, oh, well, we've been mistreated. But really, that's not how God desires us to be. God desires us to be joined together, to love ourselves and to love our neighbors and to love him. So how do we separate ourselves from this uh, natural tendency to self-select? Well, one, we become captivated by the glory of Christ. When you are truly captivated, you cannot continue to look at others and to show favoritism. Why? Well, it says in 2.1, My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to faith uh, in, into the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is on the glory of God being embodied in the person of Christ. That is that Christ's splendor, majesty, and, and supremacy is over and above everything. And if we are captivated by this glory of God, the petty things of this world, the things that divide us, uh, skin color, height, culture, uh, nationality, all of that fades when we realize that those are just very petty things compared to the glory and the majesty of the God who created us. See, if we are captivated by this, we will not show favoritism for two reasons. One, because Jesus is supremely more important than even the most wealthy person in the world. And he is sacrificially more invested in the needy than anybody who else who has ever lived. I mean, he literally gave up everything he had, including his own life, for people who were helpless to help themselves. You can't show favoritism when you know this Christ when you're captivated by the Lord of glory who gave everything so that you might be rich in Him. The second way is that we're gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ. In, in verse 5 it says, Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He's promised to those who love Him? See, God through His grace throughout the redemptive history has chosen to show grace to the poor of this world. He doesn't pick the rich and the powerful and the mighty. He, over and over and over again, he goes to the poor. He goes to the needy. He goes to those who have no one else to turn to. Anybody here ever tried to buy a Christmas present for somebody who has everything? It's hard to do. It's hard to do. You go out, you, you're like, okay, well, what can I get them? And you're, you say, well, I don't know what to get them. I don't know what they already have. And, and even if there is something that they wanted, they've got enough money that they just go out and get it, right? I would hate to be Melinda Gates trying to buy a present for Bill, right? Why? Because he's got anything he could ever want. Anything his heart desires, he can have. So it's hard to show grace to someone who's already got everything. And that's why God repeatedly comes to those who are in need. Why? Because those who are wealthy, those who are well off, they don't need as much. And so that's why God shows His grace to the poor to show them that, you know, it goes to everybody. It goes to everybody. Remember that James is talking about favoritism and treating everybody with the same grace as Jesus. See, Jesus didn't make a difference between uh, man or woman. He didn't make a difference between Jew or Gentile. He didn't make a difference between uh, black, white, yellow, purple, whatever. He came to, to die for everybody. 
And if everybody was worthy of God's grace, then everybody is worthy of your time and your attention and your love. The third way that we um, get ourselves away from this worldly, uh, this worldly pattern is that we're devoted to the law of Christ. And if the musicians would like to come on up, we're getting near the end here. But in verse 8 it says, Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbors as yourself, you are doing well. And when James is talking about the law here, he's not talking about all the dietary laws. He's not talking about you know the, the Levitical laws that you had to do this and do that and purify yourself and wash your cup this way. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the one law that, that Jesus pointed out, and that's that we are to love God and to love others. Okay? And so favoritism, when, what makes it sinful is that it's wrong in these two respects. It disrespects man. It disrespects the other that we're supposed to love. And it dishonors God by saying, God, I know you love this person. I know that you created them and that you picked them and that you made them the way they are and that you just love the socks off of them, but they're not worth my time. That's a sinful place to be in. That's a place where we don't want to be. The fourth way we can divide ourselves from this worldly attitude and this worldly pattern is that we are cognizant of the judgment of Christ. In verses 12 and 13, it says, Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. So again, we're back to the tongue in, in that we will be judged for our words. We will be judged by those things that we say. And we'll also be judged for the things we do. So in everything we do, in our words and in our deeds, we need to be careful that we're not showing favoritism to anyone, but loving everybody just as God loved all of us. And finally, we as Christians are to be a reflection of the mercy of Christ. Mercy is, is an idea that runs throughout the Bible. Mercy is different from grace. Grace is receiving what you didn't, didn't deserve. Or is is uh, yeah? It's it's receiving what you didn't deserve, and then mercy is not receiving what you do deserve, right? Because we all deserve judgment. We all deserve the punishment for sinful attitudes. But God, through His mercy, has chosen to forgive us of our sins. And if we are forgiven, how can we then turn around and deny that same forgiveness to others? You know, mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy in you, when you have God's mercy in you, it will overflow out of you and into others. And so if we don't extend mercy to others, we demonstrate that we have not received mercy in ourselves. So as we come to the end today, I want you just, uh, I, I don't have anything um, you know, big to go on, but I, I, anytime we receive the word, Anytime we receive the word, you're presented with a choice. What are you going to do with that word? How are you going to respond to it? Because even though this letter was written by James to a group of early Christians, it's still the word of God. And it is as powerful today, and it's intended for his people today, just like it was 2,000 years ago. So the question is, now that you've heard the word, how will you respond? And so my question for you is this. As we come to the end of this service, I want to ask you, are you one of those people that has trouble controlling your tongue? Is what proceeds from you indicative of a changed life? 
You know, there have been many times where I've had to check myself and realize that the way and the pattern of my speech, the way I was talking to others was not showing the love that I felt for them. I've had to go and apologize to my family and say, I love you guys, but the way I've been speaking to you has not told you that, and it has not shown you that. And I had to apologize and say, let's start over, and let's talk nice to each other, and let's not you know, pop off at the mouth and, and be, you know, cut each other down. That's one of those things that, that I, I just can't stand on TV. They always show these families on TV. And in these, you know, I, they're going for the cheap laugh, but all these families do is they tear each other down, they tear each other down, and they make fun of mom, and they make fun of dad, and they make fun of the kids. And, and it's like, that's not what family's supposed to be. Those are the people that you love most in the world. So your words should communicate. Every word that comes out of your mouth to a member of your family should tell them how much you love them. And the same way, the people around you, the people you work with, the people you interact with on the street, everything you speak should be a reflection of the love for others that you have in your heart. So if that's an area where you feel like you need God to help you, this is the day, all right? God has called you to begin controlling your tongue, and it's not easy. It won't happen overnight. You'll still say things that you wish you hadn't. I mean, that'll never stop as long as you're alive. But you can ask God, Lord, when I speak, help me to speak love and grace and mercy into this world and not more, you know, just nastiness. There's too much of it. Or maybe you're one of those who has trouble putting others first. You know, we're all, by nature, selfish people. You know, one of the things, uh, one author that I read, he talked about how sin is like a downward spiral that just focuses on yourself. Everything that comes into your orbit is all orbiting around yourself. He said, but as Christians, we need to reverse that spin so that it's not spinning down and inward, but it's spinning up and outward, spinning out into other people. And so we need to be selfless, and we need to be looking for ways that we can help each other. So how, I want you to ask yourself, if you're one of those people who says, you know what, I have been a bit selfish. I have been a bit caught up in my own wants and desires. I have been caught up in my own plans, and I haven't been thinking about, God, how can you use me? So the question is, how can you spend yourself to serve the least of these? What is that going to look like? What is that going to look like? Is it going to be a children's volunteer? Is it going to be uh, working for a nonprofit here in town, volunteering your time? Maybe it's tutoring. Maybe you have a skill that you can use to help other people, teaching English, uh, English as a second language or, or something. But how can you find a way to serve others in your life? Or third, maybe you're that person who has allowed yourself to get caught up in the identity politics of this age. You know, we want to slap a label on somebody and say that's who they are. That's who we put the label on. You know, that, that's who they're going to be and they're different from me. But that's not what God calls you to be. God calls us to be in solidarity with each other. How many times have we allowed ourselves to get caught up into an us and them? You know, Americans versus the Russians or Republicans versus the Democrats or whatever else it is, Chicago Bears fans and Green Bay Packers fans, whatever it is, we get caught up in us and them. It's too easy to get caught up in that. When we have to realize that when we do that, it's a sinful attitude because the other is just as important as we are. 
So what, whichever one of those things spoke to you today, whichever one of those ideas was something that you thought, you know what, that is something that I need to work on today. That's what we're going to pray for. And so whether it's controlling your tongue, whether it's needing to put others first, or whether it's getting caught up in, in, in identity politics and identity uh, definitions and, and showing favoritism, whatever it is, we're going to pray for that today. So if everybody would just bow your heads, we're going to pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this word that you've given us today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take it and to chew on it and to think about it, Lord God. This is your word. It's something good. It's a morsel that we should that we should look forward to. And Lord, we should meditate on this, this word of yours that you've given us. And so, Lord God, I pray that if this has shown a light into an aspect of our life, Lord, if there's an area in our life where we're falling short as a Christian, Lord, I pray that you would help us to correct that. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin to guide us and, and to, to push us into an area. And Lord, it may not be comfortable. Lord, it may not be comfortable to serve others when we've not been in the habit of it. Lord, it may not be comfortable to change our pattern of speech when we have created a habit out of it. Lord, it may not be comfortable to reach out to others who aren't like us because we don't have those easy things that allow us to connect those, those common interests and, and, and desires of culture. Lord God, it's not always easy to do what you've called us to do. But Lord God, I pray that you would give us grace. Lord, I pray that when we try and we fail, Lord, that you would forgive us and help us to dust ourselves off and try again. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to control our tongue. Lord, to be a, an avenue that speaks of peace and mercy and grace into the world and not more hatred and, and sarcasm and, and, and just tearing people down all the time. Lord God, I pray that you would anoint us so that when we're in our families that we're speaking to each other in a way that, that shows our love for each other. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the needs around us. Lord, sometimes we will walk by somebody or something day after day after day and we're just blind to it because we're so caught up in our own, uh, our own lives and our own plans, Lord God. But I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see how we can make a difference. And Lord, finally, I pray that you would unite us. Lord, I pray that you would stop, uh, I, pray, I pray that you would help us to stop labeling ourselves and dividing ourselves out from other people and realize that we're all your children and that you love all of us. Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.